high-speed rail. We've been hearing about a bullet train from Dallas to Houston for about 13 years now, but so far, we're still forced to make the trek along Interstate 45. You're not going to be a mega region uh, in this century uh, if you cannot provide fast intercity, safe intercity transportation and high-speed rail, we think, uh, versus the automobile. And while high-speed rail may not be moving into Texas quickly, people certainly are. The state has more than 30 million residents, with more than 8 million in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex alone. So I believe when you hit about 8 million people, which is about where we are, we're probably 8.1, 8.2, you start to transition. We need density around rail stations, and we shouldn't be building homogeneous residential neighborhoods where you have to get in your car to go find a bottle of aspirin. I'm Chris Blake, and this week on Texas Wants to Know, will high-speed rail make it to Texas? And how else can we move millions more people around the state? I don't think the automobile was really a defining moment for Texas. I think air conditioning was a defining moment for Texas. We wouldn't have this population without it. That's Kara Cockleman. She's the DeWitt Greer Centennial Professor of Transportation Engineering at the University of Texas in Austin. There's just really no way to build yourself out of it because humans are kind of insatiable. So we're going to keep wanting to go further, faster, and bigger vehicles unless we institute thoughtful policies to really manage demand. So what could some of those things look like, some of the changes look like? Well, we probably should have you know, gasoline taxes that are commensurate with what we see around the world. Americans are some of the wealthiest people in the world in terms of GDP per capita, and we pay the lowest taxes in the world and, and certainly the lowest gasoline and diesel prices in the world. So we end up with the biggest vehicles by far, and we drive about twice as far as our peers. We also live in a relatively new nation, and so we don't have the densities many cities that evolved before the age of the automobile enjoy, and that's one of the reasons that we are so far flung and so low density, except for our older cities, which get a lot of population growth before the automobile in the early 1900s. I think there's three things that come to mind. Within the region, the, probably the most innovative thing we have going for transit is what I call guaranteed transit. So we have these dynamic message, dynamic uh, managed lanes. We have 70 mile an hour speeds. We maintain the speeds through dynamic pricing. Michael Morris is the Director of Transportation for the North Central Texas Council of Governments in the DFW area. But on the transit side, we call it guaranteed transit. So you have hopefully next generation buses, electric buses, they're going whatever the max speed is, 60, 65, 70 miles an hour. If we don't get you to your destination, then we'll pay your transit fare. So it's guaranteed transit. The second, more of a last mile mode, is our autonomous transit system. So we're we are advancing two pilot autonomous transit, one for goods movement. So you have autonomous transit connecting parking garages to buildings, and eventually it goes to the silver line. So it's actually an access egress, but there are no drivers on the trains. It's elevated autonomous vehicles. And then the third is high-speed rail. High-speed rail is certainly a safe, very convenient inner-city transportation mode. Cockleman, though, was less optimistic about the future of high-speed rail in Texas. It's more expensive than conventional rail. Of course, we hope it'll be more popular, but as you've seen in California, it's incredibly difficult to get that right-of-way. 
California voters approved high-speed rail in 2008, and construction started in 2015. According to a March report given to the state legislature, the proposed opening date still isn't until 2030. It needs to be a very gentle, generous alignment so that the trains can go high speed and everybody wants a station, which ends up slowing the whole thing down. So you can't go from end to end, like from Dallas to Houston, uh, maybe with one stop in between would be great, but you'll probably have other places arguing for stops. And those stations are extremely expensive. And even if just a few people buy a seat, you got to send the train. So it goes mostly empty. It's that same issue of the buses driving around largely empty all the time in almost all corridors. Ends up being a very expensive mode per passenger mile served. It'd be much more cost effective to have small vehicles that are right sized. You look at rush hour in Dallas or Houston or Austin or any of the major cities in our state, the roads are getting more and more congested. What would be some alternatives that either local transportation authorities or the state as a whole could try to implement to try to ease that? Texans certainly driving smaller vehicles will ease traffic congestion because these heavy duty trucks obviously take more space than light duty vehicle, but SUVs and pickup trucks take more space and they take more green time at signals and they take a lot more space, of course, in parking lots. They make it harder to see around so people end up staying far back from the bigger vehicles. So just going smaller on vehicles would really help. You think about more cars on the roads, the size of the vehicle never really entered my mind, but it sounds like that is something that impacts Texas, maybe some of these other more southern, western states than other parts of the country. Well, you won't see these kinds of vehicles in, in lots of other states. I think Texas was the first to buy the Suburban. It was considered the station wagon of Texas, and nobody else really had those, just like nobody else has frontage roads. That's a Texas thing. Uh, so we, we are quite different, I think, from much of the nation. We definitely can do be a lot more efficient. All we have to do is look to other nations or even other states within this country, and you'll see a very different fuel economy. And That'll make, I think, traffic move a lot smoother, but filling those vehicles would be a great way to also reduce congestion because we mostly travel solo or maybe two people in a vehicle, depending on the, the distance. The, the longer distance trips tend to have more people inside and the short ones uh, tend to be solo, especially here in Texas. While Cockleman advocated for more efficiency on our roadways to move the millions of people in our state, Morris suggested a different approach. I think we would spend more time on, you know, working with the public to understand the benefits of density, you know, things like, hey, we want better restaurants. Well, in order to get better restaurants, the restaurant needs more people within a certain distance of them. So if you want better restaurants, you're going to have to accept, you know, something other than low dense residential because low de de density residential is not going to produce high end services. So we call them integrated land uses where you kind of live, work and play. And you see them in Old Town Louisville and 7th Street and uh, downtown Arlington. You see them in certain places. Most of our major cities in Texas do have some sort of light rail or bus system or something of that sort. What would be an incentive or how would local leaders be able to convince residents to use those services more often? 
Well, trans is very expensive, so I don't know that that's the optimal mode to push. Transit costs about $2 per passenger mile, whereas vehicle ownership costs about 70 cents per vehicle mile. So if you were to put one person or two or three or four, it's a really hard mode to beat. So yes, if you take the driving into your own hands and deal with the maintenance on your own, you end up with, you know, a much more cost-effective vehicle. Public transit only becomes competitive in cities when either parking is super expensive, which means it's super limited, like in Manhattan, or the stations are easy to get to, which really only happens in population-dense settings, which we have got rather few of. How much of it is just teaching a new lifestyle and how hard is it to get that change to happen? What I went back and explored is, okay, what are those examples in my own life that really changed my behavior? And the one that comes to mind is Discount Tire. So I didn't know who Discount Tire was. Um, I heard if you have a flat tire, you bring it to Discount Tire, they put you in the front of the line, they fix your tire and they don't even charge you. And all, the, all they basically say is, hey, if you ever need tires in the future, kind of remember up. And it's a high level of service, uh, very much uh, a reliable level of service and a commitment to excellence. Changing habits is hard to do, especially a habit that has been part of a daily routine for so many working age Texans for decades. So that's some of the thought behind Transit 2.0, where you sort of develop some independent thinkers to come into the region and, and lay out some of those principles to actually generate this behavioral change that we're going to need in order to help us with safety, reducing the fatality rate, air quality, reducing emissions, having a work, live, and play sort of land use. Uh, I think you can start to really have adult conversations about that or mature conversations about that after 8 million people on our way to 11 million people because it's really a different place at 11 million people than it, than it is today or different than 10 years ago. What's the latest on high-speed rail? So Amtrak is uh, in discussions with the Japanese. They're going through a series of you know exploration, you know business model, financial close. They're going through a series of steps. I don't know exactly what the steps are. You're going to know a lot in November, which we're about four to six weeks away, because they submitted an application in the federal state funding program in the infrastructure bill to Federal Railroad Administration, where they're competing with other applicants for a lot of money on high-speed rail. And Morris says he thinks Amtrak may have bigger plans for North Texas. I think Amtrak is making Dallas-Fort Worth sort of their home of the West, west of the Mississippi. You know, they're, they're big in the Northeast corridor. So, you know, why do I say this? Well, they're partnering to build high-speed rail, for first high-speed rail adventure for them above their 80-mile-an-hour Northeast corridor service, 80 to 100-mile-an-hour Northeast corridor service, truly high-speed rail with Japanese trains. You obviously already have train service to Chicago, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City is being expanded to Kansas City. You have Amtrak service to Austin, San Antonio. And now they announced uh, after 20 years of hard work by the Andersons in East Texas, Amtrak service is going to go to Atlanta at great Amtrak services. So you, if you think of Atlanta, Chicago, Kansas City, Austin, uh, and San Antonio coming by inner city passenger rail to DFW with high-speed rail to Houston, you're seeing quite a nexus with regard to the gross domestic product that Dallas-Fort Worth represents with its uh, partner communities. Uh, and uh, I think Amtrak recognizes that. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas-Fort Worth. 
Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote and produced this episode with audio editing from Brie Flores, editorial support from Cooper Mall, and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.